our need for cleansing. I was reminded of um, this river in India. You might know of it. It's called the Ganges River. And every year, millions and millions of people uh, travel to this river, which is 2,500 kilometers long, 8 kilometers wide, and, and they bathe in this river, which is the fifth most polluted river in the world. There's, um, the water is so dirty, it's estimated that 1.5 million people die every year from drinking the water. So it's just, you know, a filthy, filthy river. And despite it being so dirty, these people come to the river thinking that the river will cleanse them of all their past sins, that they can just bathe in the waters of the Ganges, and all of a sudden, all of their, their sins will be washed away from them. Now again, our text raises this important question, can your sins be washed away? What can wash away our sins? We've just sang about that. Um, and this passage says, yes, they can be, but obviously it's not in the river Ganges, and it's not by having a good shower, and it's not by being a good person, and it's not by doing a bunch of religious things. It's not even by, you know, serving on a roster or being very active in the church. No, our text answers this question in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Only Jesus Christ can wash away our sin. And here is just this explicit uh, reference to the coming of Jesus in in verse 9. I'll talk about it uh, later in the sermon, but I want to read it for you right now. It says, In that day I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. It's, It's talking about this day when Jesus Christ will come and remove our sin from us, cleanse us of our sin. So that's what this chapter teaches, and there are, I've split it into two sections, two chunks. We'll first deal with the first chunk, verses 1 to 3, which speak of this polluted priest. And then we'll look at verses 4 to 10, which teach us about God's cleansing power. So you've got a polluted priest, and you've got God's cleansing power. And we see that this polluted priest's name is Joshua. Uh, Look at verse 1. He has this title, the high priest. His name is is an interesting name. He's not the the same Joshua that we read about in the book of Joshua, but his name, Joshua, means deliverer. Um, And and it's the Hebrew word for Jesus. Jesus is, in in Joshua, are um, are the same name, essentially. And so you see this man named Joshua. He's the high priest, And let me just explain what the high priest is for you. Once a year, on a special day called the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer a sacrifice to atone for the sins of God's people. And before he could go and offer this sacrifice, before he could go into the temple, he had to cleanse himself. Not once, not twice, not three times. He had to cleanse himself five times, and then he had to scrub his hands and his feet ten times. So he had to be really clean. There couldn't be any dirt or any um, dust or any speck of anything on him. He had to be incredibly clean. He would remove all his dirty clothes. He would put on a pair of fresh, clean white robes that were spotless, and he would go into the temple. He couldn't enter the temple because the, with, in, his, in his dirtiness, in his state of uncleanliness, because the temple was the place where God would dwell. It's the place where God's Spirit was present. And it was a place that was absolutely holy and absolutely clean. To go into the temple in a state of uncleanliness 
would be like trampling mud into a house filled with white carpets. You, you just weren't supposed to do that. And this priest had to be extremely clean before he could enter the temple. That's the job description of the high priest. Now, Zechariah has a dream about the high priest. Look at verse 3. And this high priest is Joshua, and Joshua is anything but clean. Right? Remember the, the job description for the high priest. The job description is that he's supposed to be pure, holy, spotless, um, not filthy before he goes into the temple. But in verse 3, Joshua doesn't fit the requirements of the high priest. Why? Because he's covered in filth. And when I say filth, I'm not talking about dirt. Um, if you look at the original text, it says that he's covered in, pardon me for a minute, but he's covered in excrement. He's covered in waste. He's covered in vomit. Uh, it's not my interpretation. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says he's covered in excrement. And so he's absolutely filthy. He's, he's the opposite of what you would expect for, from a high priest. And in verse 1, we see, covered in this filth, he's, where is he standing? He's standing in the presence of the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord, in other parts, is revealed as either, uh, as either the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or as the triune God. So you could say that the angel of the Lord is the triune God. So filthy Joshua is standing covered in waste before a thrice holy God. His sight would have been offensive. His smell revolting. This is a disgusting scene. And let me just say that if you were a Jewish reader reading this, you would have been offended by this image. Imagine I rocked up to church on Sunday um, and I'm wearing the same thing. You have you might have nightmares about this, but covered in filth, covered in, in, in waste. You know, what would you say to me? What would Gerald say to me? What would, would I even have a job? Would the elders tell me to go home because I stink? This is an offensive image. This is one of their religious leaders who is covered in waste and excrement. And the image is meant to offend us. It's meant to shock us. Because it's designed to show us the sinfulness of sin. Now, sometimes we think sin is not so bad. And, and this is kind of reflected even in the way that we talk about sin, isn't it? I mean, we know in our heads, and we know what the Bible teaches us, we know what we've heard on Sunday morning, we know that sin is, is vile in God's sight. But sometimes we speak of sin in, in trivial ways, don't we? we um, when we sin, we say, well, I made a mistake. Or we might say, well, no one's perfect. Or we might say, well, I've, I've just missed the mark. We, don't, we speak of sin in a very trivial way often, but uh, this text highlights the fact that sin is not trivial. These filthy robes are offensive to God. Sin is offensive to God. Now, God 
as, as Joshua stands before a thrice holy God, God could do one of two things with Joshua, okay? He could either demand that Joshua leaves his presence. God has every single right in the world to send Joshua and the people of Israel to hell. He has every right to do that because they have sinned against him. And they haven't just made a mistake. They have sinned against a thrice holy God. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Joshua is standing there and he's drenched in sin. And you'll notice um, Satan is there, right? Look at verse 1. Satan is there. And he's, he's ready to accuse them. And you can, though we, the text doesn't tell us what those accusations were, I think they're implied. Look how dirty he is, Lord. Look at your servant, he's filthy. Look at how unclean he is. Look at all his sin. You really think that this man should be your priest? You really think that he's worthy to go into your temple? Satan is making all of these accusations. And, and, and the thing about these accusations is that they're true in some way, shape, or form. Or at least there's an element of truth to these accusations. Joshua is dirty. Joshua is a sinner. Joshua is vile. The nation of Israel has, have turned their backs away from the true and living God. The nation of Israel has committed idolatry. And, and just as a judge has every right to sentence a murderer or a thief to prison, God has every right to look at Joshua's sin and condemn him. That's justice, right? But you see that God doesn't do that here. Because if you know your Old Testament well, he made a promise back in the book of Genesis. He promised Abraham that he would make Abraham a great nation. He promised his people that he would never leave them or forsake them. Throughout the Old Testament, he made promises that he would never abandon them. And instead of snuffing them out in the Garden of Eden, what does he do? He allows them to live. Instead of drowning them in a flood, he saves them on a boat. Instead of leaving them to starve in the wilderness, he feeds them and nourishes them with bread from heaven. Instead of uh, giving the Israelites what they deserve, he gives them what they don't deserve. Look at verse 2. And he shuts Satan up. Satan is, is accusing Joshua and accusing the nation of Israel of all this sin. And God reminds them, reminds Satan, that his plan, his good and gracious plan from before the foundation of the world is not to destroy this people. It is to save this people. He has saved them. Uh, we see in verse 2, it's, it's, he, has, he has pulled them out of the fire is the image there. He is not going to condemn them. And just by way of application here, there are times in life when Satan seeks to accuse us. You know, we sang about that, right? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do you do? You wallow in your guilt? You, you, you say to yourself, there's no hope for me? 
And God is faithful to those people. God is not faithful to me. There are times when, when we believe Satan's lies. We believe, we read in the Bible that God will never leave us or forsake us, and then we believe the lie of Satan that God will leave us or forsake us. No, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there, Jesus Christ, who made an end to all our sin. So we see here this polluted sinner, this polluted priest. But we also see in this passage what? God's cleansing power. God's cleansing power, which is my second point. I was watching this, this video on YouTube of these guys in America, and, and they, they do this really interesting thing. They go and they find homeless people on the street. They pull them off the street. They bring them into their barbershop. They shave them, cut their hair, give them a shower, clean them up, give them a job. And, um, and then uh, the guys producing the video, they get all the glory for it. And there's, they get like 15,000 likes or something like that. But the problem with these, in this video is that usually these, these men who have been, been um, physically changed, they end up back on the street. But the angel of the Lord here, um, who is really God, cleans Joshua up. And unlike this project for the homeless we see in verse 4, that this kind of cleansing is, is total, it's permanent, it's not... It's not just kind of a, a clean him up and send him out. It's a, it's a life-changing kind of cleansing. God removes, you'll see in verse 4, if you, you're looking at your Bibles, God removes all of Joshua's filthy garments. We know from verse 4 that these garments represent the sins of Israel. We can even say that they represent our own sins. The sins of bitterness. The sins of, of envy. The sins of lust. Trivial sins like gossip self-righteousness, murder, um, all sorts of sins. These robes represent sins of pride and discontentment. And you see what God does here. He removes Joshua's sin from him. And in effect, because Joshua's the high priest, he's removing Israel's sin from them. And then what happens? Look at verse 4. After the robes have been removed, the angel of the Lord brings him a new set of clothes, white, without spot, without stain, without blemish, priestly robes, a priestly turban. Where's the vomit? Where's the excrement? It's gone. He's clean. He's been cleansed. Look at verses 6 to 8. And here's, here's kind of like the beautiful picture. There's this promise um, that once he is clean, he is given the right to enter the temple. He's given the right to enter God's presence, to rule over God's house, to live in God's kingdom, which, I mean, is really the reality for all of us as Christians, isn't it? It's a reality that doesn't often hit us because we're just so consumed with everything that's happening around us, you know, work and school and extracurricular activities. But this is the reality here. The reality is that, that once his sins have been forgiven, he is given the right to, to have that enter into fellowship with God. 
And in this life, we know that that fellowship, that we have that fellowship, but there's a coming fellowship that we'll have with God in heaven. And we will live in his eternal kingdom. So he's clean, he's been cleansed, not because he's taken a bath, not because he's you know, bathed in the river Ganges, not because he's super religious or he's prayed a lot. He's cleansed not because he's incredibly smart and knows all the right answers. He's clean. Why? Because God cleansed him. Now, how does God cleanse us? Which is an important question, isn't it? Uh, people who are unaware of this, their sinfulness don't typically ask this question. They're not thinking about that. They don't sit at home thinking, how can I get rid of all my sin and my guilt? And in those moments when they do feel sinful or guilty, they either try and ignore their guilt, hide their guilt, or minimize their guilt. But any of us here who has a slight awareness of their sin should be asking that question. How can my sins be washed away? How can my selfishness, my greed, my pride, my anger my impatience? How can my greatest failures or my most trivial sins be forgiven? And and not just forgiven by other people, how can I find forgiveness by God? The answer to that question is in this text. Look at verse 8. The angel of the Lord tells Joshua that everything that has happened thus far in the dream, that the polluted robes, the clean robes, all of it is symbolic of something that would happen 500 years later. And what is that something? I mean, doesn't this, isn't this amazing? Just think about this, guys. This is amazing here, what we're about to see. 500 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, we are told that a Messiah, a Savior will come. And we see Jesus here in the second part of the passage. This is one of the most explicit prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And you'll notice that there are two symbols here. Uh, What's a symbol? A symbol is an image that depicts or represents something bigger than itself. So a wedding ring is a symbol of marriage, right? Uh, The golden arches are a symbol of McDonald's, greasy food. The Bible is filled with symbols, right? And there are two symbols here. Really interesting symbols, I think. The first symbol is in verse 8. What is the first symbol? A branch. A branch. In verse 8, we're told that God is going to send his servant the branch. Throughout the Bible, Jesus is often called a root or a branch or a shoot. And he's even called in John 15, a vine. So Jesus is often given this symbol. He is a branch. You could say in the Old Testament with Moses, he's a bush, a burning bush, a pre-incarnate appearance of of Christ or of God. In Revelation 5.5, he's called the root of David. In Isaiah 11, he's called a shoot, and here he's called the branch. Now, why is he called the branch? Why, Why does this symbol matter? Why even use this symbol? Well, let me explain. If you've ever cut down a tree, sometimes what happens after you've cut down the tree is a little shoot begins growing up. And sometimes those shoots can be a little pesky because you have to just keep chopping them down and chopping them off. But when you cut down a tree, often there's a little shoot that pops up. And there's symbolism here. 
because the kingdom of Israel, if we were to compare it to a tree, was like this mighty tree. You remember the kingdom of David and of Solomon. It was like this, this mighty kingdom, this um, um, incredible kingdom, especially under Solomon. It was like this massive tree. And what happened when the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem? They cut the tree down. And, and the kingdom was done. No more hope. Bye-bye tree. But then we're told, Zechariah says, oh, but wait, there's a little shoot coming up. The kingdom's coming back. And a king is coming. And he's not here now, but you just wait. 500 years. They didn't know how long it would take. In 500 years, the shoot would grow. And a new tree would grow. And that tree would, be, would bring, usher in a new kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the second David, the better king of Israel. So there's that symbolism there. And I have to explain that because I think, I think in the Old Testament, as the Old Testament readers are reading this, they would have probably understood that implicitly. We need to unpack that. And we need to unpack the second symbol here because we're told also that Jesus is a rock, Right? Um, look at verse 9. He's a stone. And not just any stone. He's got seven sides. And if you've been listening to Gerald's sermon series on Revelation, you know that there are sevens everywhere in the Bible. And seven is the number of perfection or completion. And we have this stone which symbolizes perfection. And, and um, throughout the Bible, Jesus is identified with a stone. Psalm 118, Isaiah 28, Matthew 21, Romans 9, Ephesians 2. All of these chapters identify Jesus with a rock, that he is called the chief cornerstone of the temple. And so he, he uses this image to remind the Israelites that as they lay the foundation of the temple, because the temple is being rebuilt, as they lay the foundation of the temple, that this coming Savior will be the foundation of that temple. That, that, that this temple isn't just about rituals and ceremonies, that this temple is about Jesus Christ. And eventually, the temple would be knocked down, and the reality of that temple, um, Jesus Christ, would, would be fulfilled. Now, as cool and as interesting as these symbols are, uh, don't let them distract you from the main message, right? What's the main message of this, this text? That we need cleansing, that's the main point of this chapter. It talks about our need for cleansing. And verse 9 tells us about this rock, this shoot, this branch, this coming king who will do what? He will remove our sin in a single day. And that's exactly what happened, right? On or around April 3rd, 33 AD. The Son of God was betrayed by one of his disciples. He was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane to the house of the high priest. There's kind of irony there, you know. He's taken to the house of the high priest. And he's falsely accused. You know, it's interesting actually because the high priest in that sense was acting kind of like Satan. He was accusing Jesus. Falsely though. And he was accused until the early hours of the morning. He was brought out before Pilate and Herod, right? He was stripped of his clothes. He was beaten. He was forced uh, to carry his cross outside the city, and then he was hung on a cross. But more importantly, what happened to Jesus on the cross spiritually on that day? You remember these 
filthy, polluted, vile robes that Joshua wore in verse 3. When Jesus hung on that cross, it's as if he was wearing those polluted robes. It's as if Jesus took the robes off of Joshua and placed them on himself as he died on the cross for Joshua the high priest's sin. Isaiah 53 says, On him, the coming Savior, was laid the iniquity of us all. What was happening on the cross? When Jesus died on the cross, he was, it was as if he was wearing our sin. And God was looking at our sin. And God was punishing our sin as he punished Christ. So that when God looked at his only son, what did he see? He sees every sin that you can remember and every sin that you've forgotten about. That's what he sees. He sees the pride and the discontentment and the bitterness. And he satisfies his justice, right? By punishing that sin. So that on the cross, Jesus wore Joshua's polluted garments and Adam's polluted garments. And he wore Peter's denial and he wore David's adultery and he wore Paul's murder and he wore my selfishness and he wore your bitterness. And as Satan accused, God condemned And Jesus was punished. And then what? And then he took his clean garments, right? He took his clean garments off. And he gives them to Joshua. He takes his perfect righteousness. He takes his spotlessness. He takes his sinlessness. And he says, Joshua, I want you to wear these. Because I want, I want my Father in heaven to see you with these on so that he delights in you, his child. He takes his perfect obedience and lays it on Joshua. He treats Joshua, he treats, not just Joshua, he treats Adam and David and Solomon and Paul and Peter and you and me. He treats us all in Christ as if we have obeyed the law perfectly, even though we sin every single day. We are covered in his righteousness. He treats us as if we were sinless, even though we're not sinless. We know that. All of us know that we're not sinless. But he treats us as if we were sinless. And he views us that way today. He doesn't treat us as as sinners, but he treats us like his only son, Jesus Christ. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. That is how we are cleansed. Not by swimming in the Ganges, not by trying to be a good person, not by trying to live a perfect life or acting super religious. I think some of us functionally, I know we don't believe this, but functionally sometimes we think, oh, I'll come to church and I'll earn God's favor by doing things. I can be a better Christian and God will love me more and God will bless me more. That's not how it works. And we know that's not how it works, but sometimes we act as if that's how it works. But the beauty of the gospel is that none of those things can wash away our sins. Only Christ's imputed righteousness can um, cleanse us. His blood was spilt so that our sin could be atoned for. And that's why we sing that song. What can wash away my sin? 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, let me just leave you with a, a final point of application here. Like, why does this make a difference for you? Does it make a difference? Does it actually change the way that we live? Or is it just like uh, a nice tidbit of information that we're going to store in the back of our mind and take home with us? It changes everything, doesn't it? it? I mean, for me, it changes everything. It changes the way I see God. Because knowing that my sin is forgiven, I am not fearful of God's wrath. I'm not fearful of God's condemnation. I embrace God's correction because I know that God is a good father who corrects me, but I'm not afraid of his anger and his wrath and his condemnation because Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It changes also the way we view sin, right? What are the ways that we normally deal with sin? Normally, often we deal with sin by either hiding it I didn't do that. Ignoring it. We minimize sin. We, we, we say, you know, uh, yeah, I did this, but it wasn't that bad. We um, sweep sin under the rug as if it never happened, right? We justify sin. Well, we compare ourselves to others, right? Well, yeah, I have this little bit of bitterness, but that lady over there, who doesn't exist, that lady over there, is, you know, she's, she's really bitter. You can just see it on her face. Comparison to others, right? We deal with sin in, in just really crazy ways. And there's relief in knowing that actually we don't need, there's kind of a freedom in knowing we don't need to hide our sin from God. We don't need to justify our sin before God. We don't need to Uh, excuse our sin before God or ignore our sin or sweep our sin under the rug because our sin has been dealt with by Christ. And so we can, that that kind of empowers us to bring, bring those sins to him in confession. To be honest about our sin. Because we know that God is not going to condemn us for the things that we've done. We don't need to be like Adam in the garden, hiding under fig leaves. Because we know that we have been clothed, just as Adam was clothed with animal skins, right? We are clothed with Christ's perfect righteousness. And then finally, another final point of application. It changes the way that we live for God. God empowers us by His grace to obey Him, to serve Him. We've been saved what? To serve. We've been saved to be be to enter his kingdom and be servants in his kingdom, which is what we see here in this chapter, verse 7 and 8. Joshua, immediately after, after he is clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness and cleansed, he goes off and he walks in the ways of the Lord. He keeps the Lord's charge. He rules over the Lord's house and he obeys, not because it's going to save him, but because he's just so grateful and thankful for the salvation that has been offered to him. So when we fully understand what it is we have been saved from, it changes the way we view our Savior, right? Think about, think about this illustration in the New Testament, you know, of, it's in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. There's this man, he's tormented by demons, by a legion of demons. And Jesus comes to him, and he cleanses him, and he sends those demons off into a pig. Into, in a, into a 
uh, herd of pigs, right? And, and what does, after he has been cleansed, cleansed from his sin, cleansed from demons, cleansed from his affliction, after he has been cleansed, he go home and say, oh, that's nice. I'm just going to keep living the way that I've lived before. No. He begs Jesus to be his follower. Can I be your follower? Can I go with you? And so we understand that we're not just saved to, to go back to our sin. We're saved for service, to be servants in God's kingdom. That's why we're cleansed. Not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but we, because we are so incredibly grateful for what our Savior has done for us. So friends, may this truth, the truth of this passage, get you thinking, thinking about Jesus Christ, what he has done for you, that you wouldn't take for granted what he has done for you, that you would remember what he has done for you on the cross and what it means for you going forward. Let's pray.